This is a HeadGum Podcast. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Welcome to Factually. I'm Adam Conover, and uh, it's been a hell of a week in America. As this episode airs on January 13th, it's been exactly a week since the insurrection, the riot, the whatever you want to call it, at the United States Capitol. And, you know, that puts me in a bit of an awkward spot as a commentator. Uh, We had an episode that just came out that Wednesday, regardless of the facts on the ground. Uh, And... You know, now my next episode, it's a week later. There's already been thousands of people writing about what they think about this. You've read article after article, I assume. So, you know, I don't have that big of a statement to make, but but let me say a couple words. OK, can I just say this? Uh, it is painfully clear that the state of our information ecosystem, the machine that brings facts, knowledge, and opinions to the people of this country is in an absolutely terrible state. I mean, if that wasn't obvious already, I think it is quite obvious now. And, you know, I think there's a tendency, an unfortunate tendency to treat the people who are purveying misinformation and conspiracy in this country as clowns. You know, like, oh, Alex Jones, you know, that guy's got his shirt off. He he yells about frogs or whatever. That guy's funny. You know, who could who could listen to him? Well, guess what? People are listening to him and to the other voices like him. And not only are they listening to them, the words that they're saying, the false facts, the misconceptions, the hatred, the conspiracy, those words are going into those people's brains and they're causing their bodies to move around. Does that make sense? The thoughts and ideas are being converted into beliefs and those beliefs are leading to actions and the actions that they're leading to are in this case, hundreds, if not thousands of Americans breaking into the United States Capitol and killing five people. And not only that, but senators and Congress people taking what was once a routine part of, you know, certifying an election, just certifying the Electoral College's vote, something that I didn't even know needed to be fucking done until last week and turning it into an opportunity to hold the government hostage until they get their way, regardless of the fact that the facts do not bear out their assertions. Misinformation, lies, and propaganda have led here to violence and to the near breakdown of our entire political system. And so, you know, I'm happy to hear that they're going to be prosecuting, you know, the, the folks who broke into the Capitol building and killed people, but I'm afraid it's not going to solve the problem until we address the wellspring that these actions are coming from. I have dedicated my career, you know, ever since I went from being just some asshole who tells jokes 
to some asshole who tells jokes about important shit you need to know (laughs) to combating misinformation and lies of this sort. And I'm going to keep doing that. Uh, So far, me doing that hasn't stopped any bad things from happening. It hasn't stopped the vortex of misinformation we live in from getting worse. But I'm going to keep doing my bit. That's all I know how to do. And I want to thank those of you listening to this show for being people who are committed to facts, to knowledge, to understanding the world as it is, to trying to get, as I always say, the inside of your head to match up with the world on the outside of your head. I think that's an important project now more than ever. And I think we need to bring more people into that project. I think that nothing is more important for the future of our country, not just our country, our, not just our society, but to humanity on earth. I think this is the project of our lifetimes, at least it's the project of my lifetime. And the events of the last week have more than anything else rededicated me to that mission And I hope that you feel similarly. And I thank you for being here and listening to the show with me and being a part of this community. Okay, that's enough. Let's move on to the topic of the actual show this week, which, uh, again, is not about current events because we recorded this interview uh, a week or so ago (laughs) before the events of the week because that's how we produce the show. So it's not topical. But guess what? It's still a fantastic interview, and I know you're going to want to hear it. Let's talk about it. You know, our globe-spanning civilization, as amazing as it is, has also caused us to lose pockets of uniqueness around the world. They've fallen by the wayside to a globalized, industrialized society. You know, we often think of, for example, the biggest example of this is endangered or extinct species, right? That's an obvious kind of loss. They're pushed out by invasive species from across the ocean who come in, occupy their niche, and animals go extinct, and we lose that unique thing that used to only exist in that one place, and now we have one thing that exists in multiple places. We're familiar with this pattern. But it's not just in the natural world. There are human cultural losses too, huge ones. Take languages. In the 60 years following 1950, we lost an astounding 250 languages, 250. And a full one third of remaining languages have less than a thousand speakers left. Isn't that incredible? A third of languages on earth today have less than a thousand people speaking them. Well, what do I mean by that when I say that we lost languages? How do languages die? Well, one way is through force. Imperial powers, when they colonize an area, they might force indigenous communities to speak their language. This accounts for the loss of local languages among Aboriginal Australians after European settlement and in Nepal after it was annexed by China. But in other cases, languages aren't lost through force, but through choice or by natural adoption. Speakers of minority language might feel that there are benefits, cultural and economic, to their children speaking the dominant language. In America, this helps account for why most second-generation immigrants, for instance, don't speak their parents' language fluently. And, of course, a language can just naturally fall into disuse when another language has become culturally, sociologically dominant in an area. If all business is conducted in one language, well, the other language loses prominence and slowly becomes less spoken. But even when it doesn't happen, By force, it is still something that we should be concerned about because we lose a lot when a language dies. We lose, in fact, an entire galaxy of meaning and connotation. See, language is how we give form to thought in the most fundamental way. It's a collection of ways to describe and structure the world. Think about a single word in the English language. Take the word 
Human, for instance. Think of its sound, human. The different shades of meaning the word has. How it's similar to, but also totally different from, the words person or individual, right? You, it means something different to you, that shade. How it leads down different roads of potential thought or expression. How you might use it in one context or not another. How when you read it in a certain context, it brings certain associations to mind. Associations that you might have trouble even describing if you had to think about it. You just kind of know. Well, now consider the fact that every single word in the English language has that enormous payload of meaning and culture wrapped up in its syllables. And consider the fact beyond that, that every single word in every other language spoken on earth has the same. That is why learning a language can be so fulfilling, because by doing so, you can get your head inside of another culture, another way of being in a way that you can't otherwise and it also means that when a language dies, a culture loses a crucial piece of its uniqueness, of its way of understanding itself, of its way of being in the world. And we as humanity lose a part of the human experience. But there's good news, because it's not like we can't do anything about it. Take Hebrew, for example. 150 years ago, it was a sacred, but not a spoken language. It was only used for, you know, liturgical rites, things like that. Starting in the 1880s, though, linguists began working on expanding it for use as a contemporary popular language. They embarked on an unprecedented project of language revitalization. And today, Hebrew is a living language spoken by millions of people. More recently, linguists and online activists have taken up the task of saving languages and alphabets across the world. And they're having enormous, inspiring success. So to discuss how that works, to discuss why it is so important to keep these languages close to us and how you save a language in distress, our guest today is Anton Troyer. He's a professor of the Ojibwe language at Bemidji State University and the author of a number of books, including The Language Warriors Manifesto. Please welcome Anton Troyer. Anton, thank you so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me. So tell me a little about yourself. You're a professor of Ojibwe. Uh, what does that mean? Yeah, uh, professor of Ojibwe. I teach the Ojibwe language, but also history and culture at Bemidji State University. Ojibwe is one of 500 or so indigenous languages that were spoken in the United States and Canada at the time of contact, and one of probably about 150 that are still spoken today. Well, uh, that's not something that, <laughs> as as an American walking around, as a, you know, uh, I'll be specific, as a white American walking around, that I really have a daily cognizance of, that there are, we think of, you know, English, Spanish, a couple other languages in the United States. We don't think about there being 150 indigenous languages that are still spoken in the United States. Right. And many thousands when you look at Mexico and South America. Right. Uh, you know, ultimately, as we, you know, for me, it's, it's ironic that mine is the indigenous language. But when I say something in Ojibwe, people look at me like I'm speaking a foreign tongue, <laughs> you know. And I think I'm at the point now where I have the president and deans at Bemidji State University convinced that if someone calls and asks for the Department of Foreign Languages to send them to the English department. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, yes. this is the this is the foreign language. The language that we're speaking right now is the language that uh, came here more recently. Right. Yeah. English comes from England. 
<laughs> a lot of people don't even think of it that way, but that's where it comes from. Yeah. And, uh, you know, even if you look at, you know, all history, all cultures and languages change kind of rapidly. You look at the first attempts to write English down, like Geoffrey Chaucer. He was writing about 600 years ago. I can barely, barely read that stuff, mm-hmm. you know. But people think of English as an ancient, well-established, you know, you know, font of civilization. Yeah. And it's both new and colonial. Uh, Well, uh, tell me more about Ojibwe. How many people speak Ojibwe? We don't actually know. Uh, Ojibwe is a big group. They're about a quarter million Ojibwe people scattered around the Great Lakes in Michigan, Wisconsin, Minnesota, North Dakota. There's a mixed Ojibwe Cree community in Montana. And there are about 125 Ojibwe First Nations in Canada. So they're really kind of a, a, a large geographical area, pretty large population, number of speakers. Our best estimates are maybe 20,000 or so. And most of the speakers are actually in Canada. Mm. So in the U.S., it's a, it's a much more endangered language, the U.S. dialects, maybe a thousand speakers left in the U.S. Wow. Just, uh, speakers of any kind, is that native speakers and folks who... Just Ojibwe. Got it. So you've published a book this year called The Language Warriors Manifesto, How to Keep Our Languages Alive No Matter the Odds. Uh, Why did you write that book? You know, it was really a combination of one of my most personal books in my my journey, uh, reclaiming my language and culture, and also kind of a manifesto and a field guide for anyone else, whether it's their individual journey or looking at a collective effort. Ojibwe is one of several languages like Mohawk, Hawaiian, Cherokee, Blackfeet that have a really um, significant broad language revitalization effort that's showing some real fruit. And there are lots and lots of indigenous people that are trying to figure this out. So uh, you know, looking at what an individual can do and what a group of people can do uh, is really helpful. So I'm, I'm excited about it. It's it's something that has been a major passion of mine throughout my adult life. And I've been really privileged to work with a lot of people in this area. And it, it shifts perspective. So uh, yeah. I'm excited to see where it goes. Well, tell me what what is so important about revitalizing a language, a language like Ojibwe or any language? Right. So first of all, I think in a place like America, it's very tempting to think that if something doesn't have an obvious financial value, it just doesn't have value. (laughs) Right. Right. How can you you make money off Ojibwe? Yeah. And first of all, you can make money off Ojibwe. Um, It's, you know, it's widely taught at colleges and universities now. Mm -hmm. Um, That's how you make your living? Yeah. I mean, it's not just me. But there are Ojibwe medium schools, uh, you know, numerous tribes and First Nations that are looking for people to teach, you know, in those schools, develop curriculum and materials. Um, it's big business. It's big business for presses, too. When they first were, were trying to get someone to publish an Ojibwe dictionary, they're like, we're going to sell three copies of this thing. And after they sold like 40,000 copies, they mm. said, wow, there's a market for this. Yeah. Uh, people didn't realize But much more importantly than that, every language embodies the unique worldview of a people. It's Mm -hmm. a different way of looking at things. And 
There are many beauties and benefits of a major colonial language like English. But the colonial way of solving problems has created a lot of problems. Mm. White folk were busy beating each other up in Europe for some thousands of years before <laughs> they took it to the rest of the world. <laughs> and in colonization, kind of the, the thinking is you're going to take one language, one culture, one way of solving problems and use it to supplant others. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's built into the way education is done, politics, so many different things. And ultimately, that way of doing things puts people in conflict with one another, culturally, socially, politically, and militarily. Why would we think that all the problems created by the colonial way of solving problems are going to be solved by the colonial way of solving problems? Mm -hmm. There are more than vestigial remnants of some very different ways to approach these things. And when we look at major issues in our world today, whether it's climate change, race relations, and so forth, we have a lot to teach the rest of the world. Yeah. And, uh, you know, embedded in our languages are different ways of looking at things. And maybe an example will be helpful. I, I, was, you know? I was about to ask you. Yeah, please. Yeah. So, so like, you know, Ojibwe, our word for an elder, Gichiayaa, literally means great being. Our word for an elderly woman, Mindamuye, means one who holds things together and describes the role of the family matriarch. And in English, you got old woman, elderly woman, aged woman, <laughs> hag, you know, and <laughs> no wonder, no wonder that like, like how many elders do you see on the cover of Cosmo? <laughs> right. You know, and we have this kind of not just awkward, but often really painful messaging to women, for example, that your primary value is your youth, physical beauty and sexual attractiveness, mm -hmm. because that's how you get a man. And that's the definition of success for a woman. It's just woven into the culture in so many unhealthy ways. Yeah. And to me, like in Ojibwe, for example, there's a saying, you know, like, I hope you live so long that you can't even crush a raspberry between your gums. It's like a blessing, <laughs> you know, or, or there's another one where like, if you do a good deed for an elder, yeah, Adam's ready for this day when he can't crush the raspberry between his gums. It's but. very funny because it, it's partially, it's partially does sound like a blessing, but then it does. Well, that is very old. I mean, that's not a, it's not a pretty picture when you can't crush a raspberry. I mean, can you, can you, you can you still get to eat the raspberry? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Please go on. No, it's good. And, and, uh, or like, you know, you do a good deed for an elder, they might touch their head and touch the, you know, young person's head and say, like I'm giving you a white hair mm. and, and it's a blessing. It's like, you know, your goal is not to stay 20 forever. Your goal is to live a long, healthy, happy life. Yeah. And you're going to get there one good deed at a time. And that there are seasons in life, spring, summer, fall, winter, you know, and, and we should hope that everybody gets to see their seasons rather than try to be stuck in one. And it trips people up. It, you know, we segregate by age. We send the elders to an old folks home. We keep the first graders with the first graders. We keep young people with young people. You know, we have culture wars between millennials and baby boomers. You know, <laughs> it, it's just really unhealthy. And I think that intergenerational 
connection and communication is is good for us. Yeah. And we have a lot to learn from each other. And there's always something to look forward to if the goal is to become a great being. Yeah. You know? And and there's so many other approaches to life, death, and dealing with drama and trauma, uh, you know, in different cultures that, uh, you know, these kinds of worldviews can and should pollinate the garden we're all trying to harvest from. Well, and there's a way in which knowing a language, understanding a language, speaking a language gives you access to a different way of thinking or a different worldview to a certain degree. Like, uh, look, I, I could push back if I felt like, and I could say, well, we do have the word elder. You know, when people use the word elder in, in English, that is a more respectful way to speak of a, of an older person, you know. Um, mm-hmm. And like, you know, in fantasy fiction, like, oh, the village elders, you know, there is sort of that idea. But that's not what we use in common speech, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, the word exists, but it's not, I think, part of the broader culture of the language, at least here in America. Um, and you could... You, you know, my <laughs> I could teach, you know, well, my grandparents are, have passed away, but I could tell one of my grandparents, hey, touch me on the head and say that wonderful phrase that you said. I give you a white hair. You know, they could they could do that. But there's there's something lost. Like when you are hearing it, when you're doing it in the in the original language, it's uh, I don't know. It's transportative like it it, it is. Uh, it goes from being a translation to being the real thing in a way. Um, right. So I'd say. It's not like it's not possible to respect your elders if you're speaking English. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not I'm not saying that. Yeah. What I'm saying is that, you know, in a language like Ojibwe, it's hard not to respect your elders or to find words to run them down mm-hmm. the same way. Yeah. Um, and especially at this kind of implicit level. It's it's the case both that a language reflects the values and views of a culture and also the case that it shapes the values and views of people who speak that language. Yeah. Um, but there are many other things, you know, there's, there's a whole section in that book on the importance of language, you know, for, for indigenous people, you know, it's, it's one of the pillars of sovereignty. What, what makes a Frenchman French is having a, land that is France and a language that is French and yeah. French traveling in China. And it's like that for all of us. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, it's something that is foundational for a lot of our cultural practices and ceremonies and things like that. Uh, there are so many different things for, for academic inquiry, for access and use of oral history, uh, for understanding the maps that, are all around us and all the place names, they, they have a unique, you know, perspective and way of looking at things. There's so many different dimensions to that. And, you know, ultimately you can look at what's, you know, the malaise in our current educational system. Our America's educational system is messed up. Yeah. Like right now we have the majority of our, of our students in America, 51% are students of color. That's who's here. It doesn't matter. Democrats, Republicans. Is that build across wall, public and private? That's, that, that's that, just... that's, those are the K-12 students in the U.S. Wow. The majority are students of color. Wow. Yeah. That's who's here. Right. Doesn't matter if you build a wall or don't. Doesn't matter. Democrats, Republicans, <laughs> right. any of that. Right. That's who's here. But the American educational system is only tracking about 60 percent of the students of color to the finish line of high school. 
Wow. Oh my God. Only 60%. And like the native students are only about 50%. Wow. Getting to the finish line with high school. So if you had perfect racial equity in terms of economics today, of course we don't, but pretend we did for a second. Yeah. Pretend we didn't have that property tax problem. Because there's this link, this link between educational attainment and economic prosperity, our educational system alone would engineer racially predictable financial disparities. Yeah. Right. And now just examine this with a counterpoint. Like you can look at the indigenous language revitalization effort in Hawaii, where there are 22 Hawaiian medium schools or in Hayward, Wisconsin. uh, You know, there's an Ojibwe medium school that's had a hundred percent pass rate on its state mandated tests in English for the first 15 years of operation. When the pass rates 50%, 50% for the native kids in the English medium public school. So if someone is figuring this crap out, then maybe we should pay a little more attention to that. Yeah. Right. And it seems like assimilation is what we do in education. And when you provide an alternative and people get to learn about themselves as well as the rest of the world, they do better at everything. And when you say medium school, you mean the the classes are taught in Hawaiian and Ojibwe in whatever the language is. Right. Yeah. It's the medium of instruction. And there are many other ways to look at, you know, that part of the equation, like the top seven U.S. states in aggregate test scores are Wisconsin, Minnesota, North Dakota, Iowa, Michigan, and the bottom states in racially predictable disparities are the same states. Wow. So the whiter the states the wider the curriculum, the wider the body of teachers, the better the white students do, and the worse everybody else is doing. You know, and when I didn't you do think something this, different, you get something different. I didn't think this episode was going to be about the crisis in the American education system, but you're blowing my mind right now. <laughs> <laughs> is it like that? You, you that illuminates so much to me. Um, but I, I want to get back to the earlier point you were making about you know what is what is it to be a Frenchman other than to speak French. Um, and I just, it's just making me think about how, you know, language is like the substrate of thought in, in a large way and in humanity, you know, I mean, my dog has thoughts and doesn't have a language, (laughs) right? So it's not like you need a language to have thought, but for humans, the two seem like inextricably combined. And, uh, even if, even if you had two languages that, uh, were, you know, even if we didn't have the, the cultural differences, the, the, the differences of value that you were talking about embedded, um, even apart from that, there's a closeness to a thought that comes from understanding the language in which it was spoken. You know, I just think about when I was in college and I was studying German and I was reading, you know, the poet Goethe. This is such a fucking college boy thing to say. But, you know, I was right. I was reading it and I read the translation and then I got good enough at German to read it in the original. And I was like, oh, I'm closer to the original person's original thought. The translation can only get you so close, you know? Mm-hmm. And and that's a very trivial version of, of this phenomenon. When you're talking about a culture and a people, uh, it, it's very clear to me how being able to have the language be alive, to speak it, to understand it, to, to you know, to, to participate in it is, like, really vital to its existence to to like it, it's as transportative again that you're you, you know you're can partake in 
it's essential what it is. I'm I'm running out of words right. to describe what I'm talking about, but it's an extremely profound closeness to it that I think the language gives you that you can't get any other way. I, I, I don't know. Does that make any sense to you? Right. Yeah. Some things don't translate that well. You know, like I spent a fair amount of time in Hawaii and they're kind of heroes to us in the indigenous language revitalization world. Mm. And they have a word, Maoli, which, you know, I, you might translate it as something like positive self-esteem or something like that. But to them, they, they describe it more like spiritual fire and that, you know, all human beings have, you know, sources of spiritual fire. And for them, they talk about three main ones, like the top of the head, the soft spot on a baby's head is where the soul resides. You know, there's your belly button is pico. That's your connection to your, you know, your mother and your ancestral line. There's is a matrilineal culture. For them, genitals is like connection to your future generations. And they say, well-tended fires grow strong and neglected fires grow weak. And when you ask them, why do you do language revitalization? They say, so that our people can have strong Maoli, so they can know who they are, um, so they can be successful in the world. And although you could translate that as like self-esteem, you know, and not provide all of the kind of background that I was, there's, there's a lot embedded in the word. And for them, like there's all this cultural context evoked with a word like that. So like the ancient Hawaiian custom, when a baby was born, you know, their, their umbilical cord falls off the belly button a week later and uh, they'd go out to the lava uh, beds and each family had their own places and they'd dig a little divot and put the belly button there and put a rock on top kind of bonding them to Mother Earth, and they'd remember their spots. And so, you know, if someone had multiple children, there'd be divots for each of their kids in a line. Mm. And when a girl grew up and became a mother, she'd put a circle around her divot, and then her kids would go there. And it's kind of amazing when you go out to, like, the petroglyphs, and there's just acres and acres of divots and circles, bonding people to one another, to their ancestral lines, to Mother Earth. And so yeah. when you say strong Maoli, that's what they mean. You know, or it's one part of what they mean. And so, you know, I mean, I just talked about that in English and it conveys some portion of the meaning, mm -hmm. but all of that's kind of packed into a word. And so every time you're saying, you know, Maoli, it's like a, a motto or a mantra that evokes those kind of feelings and connections. And you don't have to do a three paragraph explanation of it. <laughs> right. It's built into the language. You yeah. Know? That, that, that right. meaning and that connotation, like, you know, Con I always think connotation is amazing that we know, you know, you said uh, old woman versus aged woman, right? Those are two words in English where they, they, they bring a different image to mind. You know, there's a there's mm -hmm. a even just slight different cultural association between those two words. And um, there's all this meaning that comes with them that is like hard to unpack uh, that that's built in. And, and so, yeah, there's there's that level of subtlety to every single word. Um, that, and man, there's something else that you said that made me think of that, uh, you know, what is human culture, but, uh, something that is passed down from generation to generation, right? Like everything that is you're looking at, if we all forget to teach the next generation, then just human culture stops, you know, there's nothing, mm -hmm. there's nothing going forward. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's how we keep what we are alive. Uh, right. And you know, there are a couple of things. First of all, all cultures change over time. And, yeah. and there's always a tension about that. Like I've never met an elder from 
any culture who didn't shake his or her head side to side and go, oh, kids these days. <laughs> right. right. Because there's this tension about cultural change. And at the same time, you know, we all want certain kinds of change. Maybe you look at innovations in healthcare or improvements in human relations and world peace and things like that. So those are kind of progressive thoughts, change the way things are, but also keep things the same. And in any culture, they're, they're a little bit at war with each other or in tension with one another. Something that needs to be said about, you know, the native experience. First of all, most like 87% of American school districts don't teach anything about native anything after 1900. Wow. So a lot of people are enculturated in America to think that natives are something that happened in the past. So we are ancient, but we are modern too. We are many thousands of years of documented human history still in the making. And we get to change over time. We don't have to look like we stepped off the set from Dances with Wolves to be authentically indigenous, <laughs> yeah. right? But at the same time, how much can a people change and still be the same people? Yeah. It's a fair question. Yeah. And this is why a thread like language ends up being so important for maintaining yeah. cultural continuity and equipping people for a healthy way to navigate change. Yeah. And it, and by the way, I mean, it, it's, you can see it in how many colonial powers, uh, not just, uh, you know, here in North America, but around the world as one of their first projects would be to set up schools in which they would, you know, eradicate the language of the people who were colonized or, uh, or at least try to replace it with the uh, colonizers. Like, like that was a, a specific project in many, many places to varying degrees. Um, because everyone understands that language is important. Right. And I mean, that was at the heart and remains at the heart of the American experience. Yeah. Right. So it's not just that they took native kids away from their families and sent them to residential boarding schools and beat them for speaking the only language that they knew. But, you know, just several years ago, Arizona banned the teaching of ethnic studies, you know, and and there's a current political culture war about that, keeping languages other than English marginalized. Wow. Well, tell me a little bit before we go to break about Ojibwe and about, you know, what you're doing to keep Ojibwe alive and, and grow it. Yeah, I'm so lucky. I get to wear many different hats. So, you know, I'm a professor of the language and I, I teach Ojibwe at a university with COVID response. I'm leading Zoom life like so many other Americans <laughs> and I'm bringing in students from Vermont and Toronto and, you know, all over the place. Uh, so, you know, we've, we've been adapting in that environment, but I also am someone who officiates at a lot of our traditional ceremonies, including funerals. And we, uh, you know, literally spend a couple weeks in a row in a wigwam in an Ojibwe only environment running medicine dance and doing other ceremonies. We'll do two sessions like that every summer. Uh, and so I'm, I'm kind of, you know, part in the ivory tower and I'm part in the wigwam. And to me, you know, the, the language and culture work intersects with a lot of other important areas. So social activism and education and racial equity. And so I, I get to wear a number of different hats mm. and kind of travel in the, different circles there with that let's take a really quick break we'll be right back with more anton troyer 
As a Factually listener, you're probably aware of my unwavering commitment to online privacy. Well, Delete Me has been an indispensable tool for me for many years, long before they even started advertising on this show. I've been using their wonderful service. In today's digital landscape, you know, it's alarmingly easy for data brokers to traffic your personal information online. In fact, I would almost guarantee that your personal information is on multiple data broker sites on the internet right now. It's not even the dark web, it's the regular web. These data brokers may be peddling and exchanging your name, phone number, and home address, all without your knowledge. And trying to locate and remove all this data yourself can feel like an impossible task because there can be dozens of these sites. But that is what Delete Me does for you. Delete Me's team of experts scours the depths and the breadth of the internet to locate and remove your personal data. Within just seven days, you'll receive a comprehensive report detailing their findings and what they have removed. It can be hard to believe, but approximately 41% of Americans find themselves vulnerable to various forms of online harassment, and this means doxing, scams, and even identity theft, all of which pose significant threats to your financial security and could potentially derail career opportunities. I mean, I used to get weird people calling my cell phone all hours of the day or night until I signed up for Delete Me and it cut it right out. So if you wanna safeguard yourself like that and live with a peace of mind that experts are hunting down and removing your personal information every three months, then check out Delete Me. Go to joindeleteme.com Adam and get 20% off for all consumer plans with the code Adam. That's joindeleteme.com Adam. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Okay, we're back with Anton Troyer. Uh, let's broaden out the conversation a little bit. Uh, you know, you said earlier that most Americans have not had an education about Native American, the Native American experience since 1900. What do you think the biggest misunderstandings are? And by the way, is I've had so many conversations with other white Americans about this, uh, about the correct terminology or the, or the preferred terminology, Native American, Indian, please break your book is uh, you wrote a book that uses Indian in the title. Please just let me know your view on that. Uh, so we can, I don't know if it'll settle it, but, Give me your view. Yeah, no, I'll give you my opinion, and I, I think it's a good one. So this is an unsettled area, just like the black community's gone round and around. Is it black? Is it, you know, African-American? It's not, you know, colored people. But how do we be more inclusive and we come up with people of color? Um, you know, it's you won't have universal agreement. And there's nothing like not having a settled terminology question to you know, completely paralyze the conversation. So, <laughs> right. you know, is it Native American, Aboriginal, Indigenous, First Nation person or what? To me, I would love for us to have a big national conversation as they actually did do in Canada and come up with a term like the Canadians did that's just a couple of syllables and is really clear and everybody agrees with. So that's in First Canada, Nations. they use First Nation. Yeah. yeah. So they use First Nation now instead of reserve for the places and First Nation people, uh, you know, for the human beings who live there. And they went through a representative process and everybody's down with it. Uh, we haven't gotten there. And some folks have even doubled down. So 
There are organizations like the National Congress of American Indians and the American Indian Movement, you know, who've really doubled down on on Indian, even though, of course, Chris Columbus got lost and thought he was in China. Mm -hmm. No, Japan. No, India. Yes. Boom. And the label stuck. Um, I'd say Native, Native American and Indigenous are probably more politically correct, but they are sometimes ambiguous, like everyone's Indigenous to somewhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you have to say North American indigenous, which is clear, but you get a lot of syllables. Mm-hmm. Um, and even what it means to be indigenous in Greenland is different than what it means to be indigenous, you know, yeah, whatever in Arizona. So, so they can be a little ambiguous. Some organizations have used those Native American Rights Fund and others. Uh, and I, you know, what I usually tell people if we're working with a school or an organization, is work it out with your native stakeholders, have a conversation. And, you know, if you're like Native American parent committee for the school says use Native American, then you're safe to do that. And if anyone gives you a hard time, you can say, here's how we vetted it. (laughs) And we'll have a regular conversation with them. So we'll be happy to bring your comments there when we talk about it again, you know, and, and that's kind of a, a good, you know, respectful way to handle it for me. I tend to use them all somewhat interchangeably, but mm-hmm. aware of their shortcomings as a means of creating safe space so we can actually get into the real topics. Um, yeah. But but words do matter. Yeah. And, you know, even my thinking when I did the first, you know, version of everything you wanted to know about Indians, but were afraid to ask, you know, this was the word Indian was so stuck in the vocabulary, I thought, We'll just go with that. And I've kind of been shifting even my own um, communication and using probably indigenous a little bit more, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, contextually. When you're writing, usually you can capitalize words and it'll be clear that you're talking Mm -hmm. about people. But when you're talking, it's a whole different matter. (laughs) Okay, well, we'll just uh, I I really appreciate that. Yeah, it's uh, I like I really like the advice to ask the person that you're talking to (laughs) to ask the person who you're and to not, you know, so much of the time, uh, people, uh, white Americans have a tendency to treat it as some kind of weird rule based game that either they, you know, are going to, you know, play or not play. Um, when really it's a matter of basic respect with the others in your community. Sure. And I mean, a lot of people consider it a special American right to be politically incorrect. Mm-hmm. And and resist just to show how much freedom they have or something, you know, uh, not always thinking about who they're in conversation with or how they'll be perceived of by others. You know, to me, yeah, respect. <laughs> uh, I, I really appreciate that. Well, um, I imagine that it, part of what's difficult about finding terminology like that is we're talking about truly so many different people on this continent, you know, I mean, you brought in like, once you include Canada, South America, Mexico, you're talking about, when you're talking about the uh, number of indigenous native folks, pre-Columbian who are here, you're talking about so, so, so many people uh, from different cultures who hadn't even had contact with each other for thousands of years uh, before, uh, you know, the Colombian explosion. Um, and, and so that flattening is something that, uh, I, I imagine 
is one of the biggest misconceptions most Americans have that they think you're talking about one group when you're talking about so many different nations, as you put it. Right. There, there's tremendous diversity within the indigenous population. So, I mean, just imagine if I asked a question like, what do white people think about abortion, good or bad? <laughs> right? Like it's going to be that simple. Uh, you know? Oh, God. Oh, God. Uh, well, my aunt yeah, Adam, thinks this. You tell me what thinks. all white people think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, I got a house full of natives. I don't even know what they're thinking half the time. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so I, I represent one human being. And although I'm, you know, whatever, educated and well-traveled and spend a lot of time on the ground in different native communities, I, I can't speak for all of them. I can yeah. tell you what it looks like to me, you know? And ultimately that's the way it is. Like nobody sees the world the way that it is. We all see the world the way we are and we're all different. Yeah. How are people's not educations not serving them in terms of understanding uh, the Native experience in America, especially since 1900? Like, what is left out of the story that we are telling each other and teaching our kids? Oh, probably 99% of it, you know. <laughs> Small topic. Yeah. So, for starters, um, you know, Natives are often imagined, but infrequently well understood, America's always had a big imagining of natives from the Boston Tea Party, white dudes dressed up like Indians to dump tea into the harbor to say we're protesting taxes from the evil British monarch, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and, you know, for lots of imagery and symbolism for the United States. And I think natives have on the one hand been admired as the most free and then on the other time, you know, on the other hand, kind of vilified as like, you know, literally merciless Indian savages yeah. as we're referred to in the Declaration of Independence. So really, that, that all, line is in the Declaration of Independence. It is. Yeah. Merciless Indian savages. Right. Uh, I wasn't taught that in school. <laughs> right. Holy they shit. Teach you, they teach you about that document, but not the way that I've seen it. You know, wow. so I mean, I got the shirt like we wear them around merciless Indian savages. Yeah. Um, but ultimately it's like this, there's a great Ted talk, um, by Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, uh, called the danger of a single story. And in there, she says the, the problem with stereotypes is not that they're incorrect so much as they are incomplete. Mm. And if you just latch on to one piece of information, you'll just use it to confirm a bias that's already been enculturated. So for example, with natives, Imagine these conflicting stereotypes. One says, you know, we're all rich from casinos. And another one says, we're all living in squalor on reservations. How can they both be true? Yeah. The truth is, it's kind of complicated. Yeah. You know, so a state like Minnesota or a state like Wisconsin, both of those states have 16 counties each. Where tribes are not just big employers, they're the biggest employers of all. Be nice to natives. You're probably going to end up working for one someday. <laughs> and then at the same time, in both of those states, about 50% of the native kids are in poverty. Wow. Now, you could take snapshots of white America, too, and look at like white people in Appalachia and be like those poor people living in squalor. It's horrible. Being white sucks. And then you could take a you know snapshot of you know, white folk living on the, you know, whatever, Upper yeah. East Side. Yeah. You're like, man, 
privileged brats. And then you can think, how come those white people on the Upper East Side aren't taking care of their own people over there in Appalachia? And they're stingy. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? And that, sometimes those things just come up. And I think something that's made it a little tougher in native space is that, you know, we are small in number relative to the general population. And our population tends to be concentrated in certain areas. So, you know, if you're from the South or the East Coast, it's a lot easier to just stick to the imaginings. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're in the Southwest, um, you know, or even the Northwest Coast or parts of the Great Lakes or Plains, then you're going to be seeing more Native people and, and that impacts things. Um, so it, it in part depends on that. But a lot of our best and brightest also come back home and, you know, want to work for their tribe and help their people. And so there aren't that many people who are out there, you know, interacting with the rest of the world, representing, you know, on a scale that you would see with the Black community or Latinx community, you know, or things like that. So um, as a result, it's easier for people to keep on with their imaginings and makes it harder to understand. But there are a lot of people doing the work. And there are a lot of great voices out there and we're still left to caricature and things like Hollywood, you know, much more so than real authentic understandings. Shoot, they got white guys like Johnny Depp still playing most of the native parts, you know, in the (laughs) movies, but it it is improving. It's evolving, just not evolved. Yeah. Matt, every, every answer you guess raises three more questions I want to ask about. Like what, one of the things that, Strikes me. I grew up on the East Coast. I grew up on Long Island. Um, and uh, yeah, not a lot of, you know, uh, not a lot of natives in my where I grew up. Um, but then it wasn't until years later that I realized how much history was right there. So Canarsie, which is a neighborhood in Brooklyn, I believe, just a word you hear around New York is named for a tribe. So many of the towns that I grew up in, uh, you know, on Long Island, I grew up in a town called Wading River on Long Island. And that's a translation yeah. of I don't remember the, the tribe's name, but it was uh, that was their name for the area because it was a marshy area. Um, and, you know, same in Los Angeles uh, that, you know, again, we don't think of this as an area with, with a uh, large you know, with, but again, this is, right. uh, you, you know where I'm going with this. Um, yeah. So, so the rendering invisible. Yes. Uh, stuff. And it's not just that, you know, native people were here and provided a lot of the place names, although probably a huge percentage of the map in any U S state are indigenous terms. Um, whether, yeah. you know, their terms for a place or names of people who are living in the place or even something just, you know, messed up in translation. Uh, a lot of that comes from indigenous people, but the people themselves are, are here. It's yes. just that, you know, as part of the colonial effort, most of the folks from the South and the East Coast, you know, were displaced and yes. they're living in Oklahoma and stuff like that. You know, so the, the mighty Shawnee, I mean, still have a reservation in Oklahoma, you know, <laughs> and, you know, even though they're not living in eastern Pennsylvania, New York and places like that anymore. And there's a reason for all of that. But, you know, it's it's interesting, like as a native person, I will experience sometimes hyper visibility. Like I'm a brown dude, you know, with a braid or a man bun, depending on how I'm feeling on a given day. <laughs> and 
you know, so I, I get racially profiled or something like that. And that can be one form of the pain or discomfort. And then another is just being invisible and marginalized and, you know, people assuming I'm something I'm not or looking for the beads and feathers. And if I don't show up with those, then, you know, being doubted in my authenticity or something like that. And although I'm, I'm a big boy and I kind of know who I am and, you know, that's not such a, an issue for me and how I see myself, um, navigating the world can be. Yeah. And ultimately too, you know, just the, the allocation of power in the United States makes it difficult when you are rendered invisible and, you know, to have traction on major issues that impact you. So, you know, you can look at hot button topics, whether it's mascots, um, you know, and so forth. And it's just seemed like it was a lot bigger fight than it needed to be, you know, yeah. of all the fish to fry, you know, I'd consider that a somewhat smaller fish, but holy cow, why can't we just have it fried and done with? Yeah. You know? And, uh, and so that's just one of the, the things that goes with that being rendered invisible, last of the blank, fill in yeah. the blank with whatever tribe you're talking about. I mean, as, as we're talking, the Cleveland baseball team has announced that they going forward will be the Cleveland baseball team for now. They're going to pick a new name. Um, right. But my God, that took so long that yeah. the, the, and what, I, I don't even know if I want to get into it. That mascot, like I knew as a child, I was like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> like, <laughs> like how, how did that, you're looking at that, you're going, my God, this should have been, should have gotten rid of this in the early seventies, you know? <laughs> like, right. Um, and uh, it seems like it's been a long road, but do, do you feel that there has been a change in visibility? Do you feel that, uh, because, because I feel that there has been, you know, as my, again, experience as a, you know, random doofy ass white guy walking around America, you know, I feel like conversations like the one we're having, I hear them being had more often. Um, and I wonder, I do think there's change. Um, you know, America's on the verge of another attempted racial reckoning. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you ever read like Michelle Alexander's book, the new Jim Crow, you know, but among the things she says in there, is that we've never really done away with racial caste in America. We just keep reinventing it. So, yeah. you know, we went from slavery to a progressive era, and then you got Jim Crow. Was Jim Crow better than slavery? Yeah. Was it still racial caste? Yeah. From there, you know, you go through civil rights movement, and then you get a school-to-prison pipeline, and they've, you know, reorganized racial caste again. Is that better than Jim Crow? Yeah. Is it still racial caste? Yeah. You know, and I feel like we're on the verge of another attempted effort now. And there are multiple factors at play. So for starters, you know, the social justice movements have matured and changed. Leadership is more diffuse and everyone's talking to each other. Uh, and so I think there are some really healthy connections and communication in mixed company you know, people of every racial group, including white folk who really want to see things change for the better. And so I do see some movement and momentum there. At the same time, you know, there's pushback, of course, you know, and ultimately, I think one of the attributes of colonization is the erasure of 
other cultures, right? And, yeah. and colonizing people and erasing their cultures. So one of the fears of people who are steeped in the colonial way of thinking is fear of their own erasure. Mm. And one of the things that some, not all, but some white Americans are really afraid of is white erasure. That there's been a basket of unearned economic, political, but also cultural benefits and powers that have disproportionately gone to white folk. And as we shift demographically, there's a fear that it will result in white erasure and disempowerment. So some people want to protect this basket of unearned advantages that have gone to whites through what I would consider kind of unethical efforts. Make yeah, it I harder. I would also consider them unethical. You're talking about right. the, like the violence of white supremacy. I would also consider it well, unethical. Yes, and it's not just the violence of white supremacy. It's let's make it harder for people of color to vote. Mm-hmm. Like in North Dakota, where they said you you must now, you know, come up with an ID card that has your physical address on the ID card, and almost the entire indigenous population in North Dakota have PO boxes. So they remove them from the voting rolls, mm. you know, and so and, and because someone like Heidi Heitkamp had just been elected to office as a Democrat in a very Republican state. And then once they did that change, out she goes. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, it's things like that, you know, Muslim bans and, and whatever. Right. To preserve power and privilege. Yeah. And I think. You know, it's one of the greatest validations that we have a pretty oppressive system that white people are worried that we're going to now flip roles between who is the oppressor and who is the oppressed. I mean, and I think instead of that, why don't we just fight oppression? (laughs) I I mean, it makes sense. Yeah, it does. Not to everybody. Well, what I was about to say is I think you you literally put your finger on, you know, you go look at a white supremacist space on the Internet, which I do sometimes. You know, I'm like, I want to go see what these people are talking about or just look at the people, you know, who, uh, you you know, the March, uh, the Charlottesville, you know, their chant was Jews will not replace us. Right. It's explicitly the fear that you're talking about is of being replaced Um, uh, that that is. But. Yeah, why not just you just have the, that was the perfect comeback to that entire way of thinking. That's why it made me laugh yeah. so hard. Why not fight oppression? And realistically, like we're not going to get to Star Trek Next Generation where all the colors are in the room and nobody sees color. Like we're all going to be like intermarried and it's going to be like brown soup. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like everybody's grandkids are all going to be marrying each other. Right. And living and working together, you know, so like why not prepare them for that world? Yeah. Race is, is primarily a social construct. Yeah. Right? Like at first, Italians were considered non-white and persecuted for not being white. Yeah. But then the definition of whiteness changed to preserve the power of whiteness. Yeah. The same thing's actually happening with the Latinx community. Latinx doesn't mean brown. Mm. Even though there are a lot of brown people who are Latinx. Mm-hmm. Right? That's a racially diverse group that includes black, brown, white, turn on a Mexican soap opera. It looks pretty white. Right. You know, go to the Dominican Republic. Everyone speaks Spanish. It's pretty black. Yeah. You know, right. So it's it's a diverse group of people. Yeah. My partner's mother is a uh, white woman 
from Argentina. She's Argentinian and she's a Jewish woman as well. And so it's like it's yeah. complex is what you're as she's, you know, first right. uh, Spanish speaker. Uh, it's complex is what you're saying. Yeah. Right. And Argentina and America are the two whitest countries in all of the Americas. Mm-hmm. A lot of people don't think in America don't think of Argentina as white. Yeah. I, I mean, was... there are a lot of reasons why the Nazis wanted to go there, political <laughs> ones and stuff like that. The whiteness is part of it, too. I was surprised. I went because uh, we visited and I was like, oh, they don't even they don't even have spicy food here. <laughs> <They're> like, <laughs> it's like right. uh, defies what you think. And yeah, once you start, people push back on this idea of, of, of race as a social, as a social construct. Um, and uh, we're not going to get, you know, we can't like give a full accounting of it today. But like when you start looking at any of these groups and the history of them, they're it's so complex and detailed as to how they you know, where the label came from, who's included in the label, and then just how the actual groups of people like moved from place to place. If you look at the history of any one native group, like you said, uh, what was the uh, one you said ended up in Oklahoma? Remind me again. Shawnee. Shawnee. Yeah. That's a group of people who, you know, at, were in a certain place, had a certain relationship with the other groups around them, uh, had a certain, uh, you know, interaction with uh, the, you know, Europeans who came over, like, you know, moved from here to there, had a, you know what I mean? It's all so right. specific. Like, I know in um, uh, Canada, uh, please correct me if I get this wrong, because again, this is me remembering something I read a couple of years ago, but there's uh, there's the Métis group. Did I pronounce it correctly in Canada, which yeah. is specifically a mixed race slash native group that like has a particular history that's hundreds of years old. Like these are complex, right. nuanced divisions that are if you look at them. Yeah, they're come up with culturally. They're they're a product of culture and society. They're not uh math or solely genetics or anything else they are like mm -hmm. come out of the way hum the decisions human ma humans made about how we move and how we talk about ourselves and what labels we put on ourselves right right but all of that stuff drives the misunderstandings and the resistance to advancing them so you yeah. know you're going to see this racial reckoning you know it, you're, you can already see it happening with art statues you know, con you know, um, Confederate flags on, you know, emblazoned on state flags and symbols. Um, you know, there, there's an effort to reconcile with all of that. And some of the pushback isn't even about the logic of those things, but it's just this feeling like I'm going to say no, because I still want to have the power to say no. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it, it's, it's about that fear of, of erasure and shifting power dynamics. Yeah. Um, rather than even the issues themselves. And so, um, but I do think, you know, I know like Martin Luther King had his quote about, you know, the, the trend in history is long, but it arcs toward justice. Yeah. You know, that um, ultimately we are engineering positive change it just doesn't always feel like it mm -hmm. and kind of like the stock market or something you know that's going up and down all the time but there's a long-term trend up um i do think that we are you know advancing as a society at the same time that we've had major setbacks and major pushbacks and things can come apart I mean, we've seen major democracies come apart but the real test for our democracy isn't our ability to like you know colonize everybody but our ability to actually not just tolerate, but um, help everybody thrive 
with their differences. Yeah. And it's such a, it's such a positive thing when we do, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I, I just, I had this really profound experience. Um, I don't know why I found it was so profound, but like I, uh, last year went to Alaska with my family, um, the little boat tour of the, you know, uh, uh, Southeastern Alaska, uh, the temperate rainforest there. We ended in Juneau. We had like half a day and there was, there's a museum there. That's like, I forget what it's called. Say an Alaska state museum, uh, native American museum. I went in and Mm. it was one of the best museums I have ever been to. It was like chronological about all the different, you know, tribes that were in that area and their history and specifically their history with America as a colonial power. Like there were entire mm-hmm. sections on here's, uh, you know, here's like how what, what we're talking about language erasure, like here's how the state carried out that practice. Right. Um, yeah. It went from ancient to today. Right. And I was like, this is one of the most thoughtful museums I've ever been to. I learned so much and it gave me really uh, a cognizance that, you know, in that part of America, in at least in the corner that I stepped into, I was like, oh, my God, this is like a place that has reckoned way more than anywhere I've ever lived. I, I, maybe someone right. from Alaska would tell me they still, still got a long way to go. But it was like I could feel that reckoning was like in the air and it was so enriching to to be there and to experience it. You know, I was like, this is a, this is wonderful. <laughs> it was, right. it was terrific. Yeah. And, and I really believe we, we need that, that kind of effort, kind of a truth and reconciliation. We, we can't mm-hmm. get to reconciled and skip the reconciling and we can't get to healed and skip the healing. Yeah. You know? And so, so those are really important things to focus on. And really the, you know, the hot button issues, you know, that you see flashpoints, whether it's the Dakota Access Pipeline, mm-hmm. you know, response or, you know, mascots or, you know, any number of critical sovereignty fights or things like that. They're, they're, they're more like symptoms of the bigger issues that we're dealing with. And ultimately, I, you know, I have high hopes and I think we are capable of doing some really great things. Yeah. Uh, and we just kind of got to take them on one battle at a time. Um, and, you know, a lot of the battles are, are building efforts too. You know, that's kind of how I look at language and culture revitalization, you know, building and strengthening sovereign native nations. Um, you know, some of the work needs to happen within communities and some of it needs to happen in mixed company. But there's a lot of important work going on. Yeah. And, and it, I don't know, again, just, I, I had the sense being at this place, right. This particular museum I went to, I was like, my God, so many hard conversations went into the building of this place. Like Mm -hmm. someone got mad at somebody else. They had a lot of tense meetings. You know what I mean? People said, no, 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 you have to listen. Someone else said, I don't know if I, well, come on, do I really have to? And then they came around. I was like, I just was there. I was like, this was the process of decades of activism and like difficult work. And my God, how, how rewarding it was just in that one little yeah. square, just in that one building I was in, in that one town. Um, yeah, that's so cool. I, I had a very similar experience at the uh, Canadian Human Rights Museum, which is in Winnipeg. Uh, and they, they had four floors. The first floor, they had several different pods where you could learn about, you know, a story of some sort of horrible mistreatment of humans. So, you know, I knew about the Canadian residential boarding schools. I didn't know that they had interned Japanese Canadians. I thought that was something that only happened in the U.S. in World War II. 
um, but they did. And there was a persecution of Jehovah's Witnesses. By the time you went through there, I think almost everyone could see themselves reflected in the history somehow. The second floor was about how this happens on scale, like genocide, you know, the Nazi Holocaust, stuff like that. The third floor was more, um, here are stories of great leaders trying to engineer change right now. So it was Mandela and King and things like that. And the fourth floor was all about the visitor. It said, do you have a story that you didn't see here? Tell your story right now. It can be part of the record. Do you want to get involved? And here are different pods with all these different organizations doing great things. Do you want to get involved now? Sign up for newsletter, volunteer your time. Here's what's happening. And so it kind of took you through this like sobering reality through action to like, I am the change, you know, and it was just really powerful, transformative. So I'm, you know, I'm excited about that growing sentiment and the organizations, people and places that are are trying to do it. Yeah. We need more of that in Hollywood, in my industry, man. That's something that I, that <laughs> I, real. I really feel that way. Uh, I'll tell you, to be honest. Uh, me and my girlfriend recently watched Dances with Wolves. I had never seen it. She's watching every Kevin Costner movie in order as okay. as like a weird project. And I was like, okay, let's see this movie. Probably gonna be okay. Probably you know, probably gonna be really problematic. And you know, lots of things about it that I think one one would take issue with. But also, I was like, how does this movie still feel kind of revolutionary today? Like a movie yeah. with this many native actors, where half the movie is in Lakota, and it's a story about it, like. How many Westerns are there that are telling a story like this at all? The Western is one of the most popular movie forms in the history of the medium, right? And right. how many how many movies are there that are told from a Native perspective at all, right? And right. still today, you know, and we've got, uh, you know, uh, it's, I don't know. I, it was baffling. Yeah. I was baffling. It was baffling to me. I was like, this movie's 30 years old. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's, when that first came out, it was such a big deal, even in native communities, because it was like one of the first sympathetic treatments of mm-hmm. natives. Yeah. And we weren't just, you know, being shot by John Wayne or whatever. <laughs> and, uh, and so everyone was excited about it. And then there was like some authentic culture and language backdrop, you know, and real native actors. And so it was like, whoa, this is so cool. Even though it had problems, like there were good Indians and bad Indians, and there's still yeah. a white guy better at being native than the natives and that kind of stuff. But, you know, it was seemed like it was the start of an evolution. And it's like steps forward and back, you know. Um, you know, when whatever Johnny Depp was playing Tonto in the Lone Rangers, like they're still picking white actors to do this stuff, right. you know. Or Lou Diamond Phillips, you know, or, or whoever it was in, in some of these other ones. And, you know, it most of the good stuff is like still B films. It's not quite mainstreamed. I think we'll get there eventually. Yeah. You know, but it's, um, it's been a long hard road to climb. And I, I, but I think Hollywood is waking up. Like even when the movie black Panther came out, you know, they're like, wow, we didn't have to have a white character that all the white people could identify with in the primarily black film, you know, centered, you know, last of the Mohican style or whatever, but uh, we could actually have a show with black actors with a black story where black guys are good guys, bad guys and complicated and shifting, yeah. you know? And, uh, and so that was like an eye opener and it made lots of money. And so, you know, the, the awareness that Americans aren't just stupid, shallow, like I'm only going to watch movies about my people, you know, 
Yeah, I yeah. think that, that awareness is huge. And and telling these stories, just the, the richness we get from telling these stories from, you know, I uh, just coming back to that point about what what stories are not being taught in our schools and what stories we aren't getting to hear. You know, whether you're talking mm-hmm. about a modern story like Black Panther, right, or a retelling of history like 12 Years a Slave, right, which is right. as opposed to me learning about slavery from my white teacher in a textbook written by a white guy. We're watching a, a movie adaptation by a black director of a book written by a former slave, you know, um, mm-hmm. and uh, and getting that perspective directly and telling that story, you know, like that enriches our experience so much. Um, and uh, the, it, it, I, I, yeah, <laughs> I want to I want more of it so desperately. Um, right. And I'll go yell. I'll, I'll go take a meeting with somebody in uh, L.A. And, and yell at them about it and tell them to, <laughs> to hire, you know, hire some uh, native screenwriters to make these things come to life. But uh, yeah, uh, I, I, I don't know what the, these battles are so worth having, because when we come out the other side, we're all enriched by it. We really are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, I think even like growth is not comfortable. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is something like Robin D'Angelo lays out pretty well in her book, White Fragility. One of the things that makes it tough to talk about race in mixed company and stuff, or for white people to talk about race is that, you know, they haven't gone to the gym very much. White folk have been so insulated from racial discomfort. Like you can travel the world and someone will speak to you in English even, you know, that uh, the musculature is atrophied and it just feels like it's too much lifting to ask. And then there's also this unreasonably high expectation to always be racially comfortable. But for someone like me, when I go in the store or to the school, you know, whenever I'm looking for whoever's in charge, I'm usually looking at somebody from a different racial group. Yeah. And so I go to the gym every day. So I'm hulking out on you guys, you know, and, uh, <laughs> and, and that makes it, you know, both like I'm, I'm used to, to being racially uncomfortable so I can navigate that space with a little more ease. Um, and I'm, I'm ready. Like, let's go do some more lifting. Yeah. You know, and it's hard to get everyone else on board sometimes, but that's part of the, what's in the way. Yeah. I think, uh, yeah, I, I think about that experience all the time. The experience of uh, of a white person going to Chinatown for the first time. You know what I mean? And having that experience yeah. of like, oh no, I, I'm I. Uh, there's a different language here. Like, uh oh, is the waiter ignoring me? Like having that experience and how yeah. how a fragile is a great word for it. Uh, that is so okay. Uh, let's let's bring ourselves in for a landing here for uh, uh, folks who are listening who want to go to the gym more often. <laughs> Right. Yeah. How do you how do you recommend they do that? Uh, do you have any do you have any tips on getting yourself out there? Yeah. So this stuff isn't going to fall into your lap. You got to make your own luck. But it's getting easier. For starters, you know, if you know enough to know that there's something you don't know, find out. Read a book. Talk to some people. If uh, the favorites list on your phone is racially homogenous, get out of your bubble. Mm-hmm. Talk to some other people. Uh, we're more segregated now than we were before desegregation. So we have to engineer those things yeah. for ourselves. And uh, But there's a lot of help out there. So there's some profound efforts underway on the racial equity front, on the climate change front. 
there's some really wonderful indigenous authors. In the back of uh, my book, Everything You Wanted to Know About Indians But Were Afraid to Ask, is just a, a recommended reading list. Works by Native authors in any number of the areas. If you're interested in, you know, the kind of hot button current events issues, there's stuff for that. But there's also a lot in the literature realm, in history, in, you know, legal status and things like that, kind of broken into different areas. And uh, it's growing and shifting and changing all the time. So, uh, so I'm really excited to see what's going on and lean in, be brave, be willing to experience discomfort. Think about something like, you know, parenting. If we all expected parenting to be comfortable, not only would we be miserable, we just wouldn't reproduce. <laughs> right. But we know that raising kids, there's, there's going to be fevers and puke, you know, and up all nights and cranky teenagers and everything else. But because we know that, and we're willing to experience discomfort while raising a kid can be one of the most beautiful and fulfilling experiences yeah. a human being can have. So if we adopt that view about engineering change in our world, that we should be willing to experience some measure of discomfort, then we can lean in and then we can be fulfilled in the process and make the world a better place. That's what I'm talking about. It really, it really is worth it. Right. Thank you so much for being here, Anton. I can't thank you enough. This has been really wonderful. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate the connection and opportunity and look forward to keeping it going. Well, thank you once again to Anton Troyer for coming on the show. His book, again, is The Language Warrior's Manifesto. That is it for us this week on Factually. I want to thank our producers, Kimmy Lucas and Sam Roudman, our engineer, Andrew Carson, Andrew WK for our theme song. I want to thank the fine folks at Falcon Northwest for building me the incredible gaming PC that I record this podcast on and that I stream on on twitch.tv slash Adam Conover. To remind you, if you have a question for me, Email it to factually at adamconover.net and I will answer it on an upcoming episode of our Stitcher premium only podcast, Questions and Adam. That's right. An incredible, an incredible title. I love it so much. You can find me at Adam Conover wherever you get your social media or at adamconover.net. Until next week, thank you so much again for listening. And remember, stay curious. That was a HeadGum Podcast.